You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. We are glad that you're here. Ladies, can I ask you this? Like, my wife, for real, if you were at the event, uh, how many of you were at the event yesterday? Okay, yeah, so good, right? I, there's three people that really enjoyed it. I'm glad, I'm glad. The, uh, the other services weren't crazy when I mentioned it, but this service was like, eh, whatever, you know, we've heard better, you know, maybe. And um, so, okay, well, then I was gonna do the whole thing about my wife, and I'll forget I won't do it. And, um, but, well, I appreciate that, I appreciate that. I appreciate that, but it's too late. It's too late. No, but listen, if you, if you experienced it yesterday, then, then you know. Now you know why uh, my kids and I have so much joy, because we get to live with that woman, and uh, she's just amazing. And, uh, but I will tell you a funny story about her. Uh, her and I, uh, this is the first year of our church, and um, we went to, we, were, we had this, uh, we had started, and we did this a Bible study in the middle of the week, and we were driving home from it, and we hadn't eaten anything, and so we stopped at McDonald's on the way home, and uh, we ordered a two-cheeseburger meal. And I know, this is like, but this is like, I mean, this is before all the documentaries. Like, we didn't know. <laughs> no one knew McDonald's was bad for you in like the early 2000s. We had no idea. We just were like, you know, a Big Mac with extra special sauce, we thought that we were eating the right things, and we did. We thought that, like, yeah, six pieces of bread. I'm sure it's good. And so, anyway, but we ordered, we would order, we'd always order the same thing, two cheeseburger meal. We'd each get a cheeseburger and then split the fries and, and the drink. And it was, they're like, oh, you know, you do that. We only did that because I think that's probably all we could afford. And, uh, and so, anyway, but uh, she would get the bag, and then she would kind of divide everything up as we were, as we were driving home. And so she hands me a cheeseburger. She gets a cheeseburger. We put the fries in the center console. And then we would, um, so I say to her, I'm like, hey, how is the, how's the burger? And she's like, I don't know. I haven't tried it yet. And I'm like, well, there's a bite taken out of mine. And uh, she's like, I didn't take a bite out of yours. And, uh, and so then, and I'm like, how is there a bite taken out of my, I'm like, this isn't even a cheeseburger. And I, I pull the car over and I realize it's not a cheeseburger. It was a filet of fish with cheese and bacon, which Friends, listen, let's talk seriously for a second. Who in the world orders, like, this is why I tell my kids all the time, I say this, the criminal mind never sleeps. And uh, this is the criminal mind at work. A filet of fish with cheese and bacon? That, I'm sorry, that, that's not of God. I'll just tell you that right now. And so anyway, um, but yeah, filet of fish is not my jam. I, although I do have a friend who every time he goes to McDonald's, he orders a filet of fish and a quarter pounder. He calls it the mixed surf and turf. And, uh, but that's his business. So anyway, so I drive back to the McDonald's and uh, I got to get out. I go inside and um, I, I talk to the supervisor. I'm like, hey, listen, I ordered two cheeseburgers. I got a cheeseburger. And then I got this and it was a cheeseburger wrapper, but I opened it up and, and I said, and look, it's a filet of fish with cheese and bacon. And while I'm having this conversation with the, uh, with the supervisor, there's a plumber behind the counter. Work. I don't know what exactly he's doing, but he was working, and he's listening to our conversation. So I put the burger down. I'm like somebody, this is a fillet of fish with cheese and bacon, and um, and the guy says, the plumber says, that's mine. He stands up, he grabs the burger, takes a bite, and walks away. And I'm like, hold on, I've been in possession of this burger for like 20 minutes. 
it was in my vehicle. And you just grabbed it and you took a bite, like sight unseen, you, uh, trusting me. I mean, what kind of, what kind of, I could be a total maniac for all you know. And he didn't care. I mean, then again, you know, who knows? Maybe this was like a steady diet. It was like, if this hasn't killed me, nothing will. You know, who knows? Now, but the point I tell you is this. Just because something says something on the wrapper doesn't make it true. So when we talk about communication, I, I, I hear this with couples all the time. Oh, you know, we talk all the time. But listen, understand this. And you know this, that talking and communication aren't the same thing. So I spend my, my whole life communicating and talking in different settings, um, but we have to realize this, and I think we do, I hope we do, that talking is just part of communication. Because you've all, we've all experienced this. Um, if you're married, guys, you, you've, you've experienced this. You've gotten a look from your wife that has communicated more than words ever could. There have been moments where she has given you a look that is basically, if you don't do what I'm telling you by this time next week, I'll be planning your funeral. That is, that there is a specific look. It's very similar to the, what do you mean the game went into extra innings look? It's very similar to that look. Um, there's also not just uh, a look that can communicate. There's also the tone of our voice communicates something. So, and I do this whenever I talk to couples where I'll take just four words, same, same four words, and, and we'll do it in different ways. So uh, the, the words are, can you help me? And that can mean something totally different. Uh, so if I just say, hey, can you help me? That is communicating something. Um, or you can say, can you help me? Like, that's also communicating something. If I'm like, can you help me? That's communicating something. And if, you know, maybe your wife shows up and she's got something, you know, some Victoria's Secret thing, and she's like, can you help me? Right? That, that's also communicating something. To, then you're like, wow, really? Right after lunch. And uh, so, and now, so lots of, <laughs> lots of things are communicating. But are, are we sending the message that we want to send, because a lot of times what we do is we inadvertently say things we don't mean without even realizing it. And so much conflict begins with communication that's taken the wrong way. And, and if it's true in any relationship, it's true in marriage. And, and a lot of times we'll get into, we'll have an argument and it's not the words, it's the inflection. And that's why you've heard this, right? It wasn't what you said, it's Okay, this is all review. You guys even know what I'm, do I even need to be here? You guys already know all this. Well, that's good. But this is why we've got to grow in our communication. Why? Because the quality of our relationships depend on it. And I'm bringing all of this up as part of the backdrop for what I want to share with you today as we look through the, uh, continue our series in the book of Acts, because the Apostle Paul is meeting with the leaders in the church at Ephesus. He spent three years at Ephesus. He's saying goodbye to them. And this, this final scene with them is so powerful, it's so emotional, uh, it's so full of wisdom and love for these people that he cares so much about. But after this moment, Paul's life is going to change in a way that he doesn't realize. And the book of Acts will take a totally different turn once we get to chapter 21. But uh, I believe there's so much to learn here uh, to harness the power of our words, to share um, to share with, to teach with, to encourage people in our lives that, that we care about. So we're going to start in chapter 20. In verse 13, and uh, here's what we read. It says, Then we went ahead to the ship and sailed to Assos, and there intending to take Paul on board, for so we had given orders, intending himself to go on foot. And then uh, he met us at Assos, and we took him on board and came to Medellin. We sailed from there, and the next day came opposite Chios. The following day we, we arrived at Samos and stayed at Trogolium. The following day we came to Miletus, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus 
so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they came to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, uh, with many tears and trials which came upon me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And if you pause there and give me your attention, three things we're going to talk about with Paul's parting words. The first is this, that words are empowered through action. They're empowered through action. So let me give you um, a couple of preliminary thoughts that I want you to understand, just some preliminary comments, and then we'll get into the meat of what he's talking about. So first thing is, let's look at the map. Paul, starting in Troas, if you remember last week, if you were here, there was that dude that was, um, he, Eutychus, he was hanging out in the window, he fell out the window because Paul was preaching for too long. Anyway, that's happening in Troas. Then they come to this port city of Assos, they go to Mytilene, Chios, Samos, they're kind of following this pattern of all of these islands in what's called Asia or Asia Minor, because all of this is part of what's now modern day Turkey. And so they finally make their way to this city called Miletus. Miletus is about 30 miles from the city of Ephesus. It's a port city like Ephesus. As Paul makes his way to, uh, his hope is to make his way to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. And so now, Paul gets there, and um, he wants to talk to the leaders at Ephesus. Now, one of the things that I want you to uh, understand, and he's, th these are leaders that he spent three years with. These are people that he cares about, many of whom he probably led to Jesus. Uh, but there's something unique about this particular message. The book of Acts is uh, centered around sermons that are given. So a disciple, an apostle, goes to a city. He preaches uh, to people that aren't believers, then uh, these believers come to know Jesus, a church is established, and they move on to the next city. Well now, so most of the preaching in the book of Acts is evangelistic to people who are not yet believers. Where now, this is the only message in the book of Acts that is written to a group of Christians, and, and in this case, a group of Christian leaders. And um, so the other thing I want to point out, kind of as preliminary, is what I want you to note when he talks to them, he uses three terms to describe them. He uses the term elder, he uses the term overseer, he uses the term shepherd. All of these terms are used interchangeably. And this is an important thing as we understand just how kind of the inner workings of church and, and how that works. So uh, in your notes, you'll see that the first thing he does is he calls for the Ephesian elders. And the term elder is a word that speaks of a leader's maturity. Now, the Greek word is the Greek word presbyteros. It's where we get our uh, word presbyter, or we get our term presbyterian from it. Um, and it is a term that 
speaks of the leader's age and it speaks of the leader's maturity. He's not a novice. He is experienced in the things of God. He's experienced in his walk with Jesus and in the Bible. Now, the, the second thing that he calls them is he calls them shepherds. The shepherds speaks of a leader's method. And uh, this is the term that's also translated pastor. It's translated shepherd. But the word literally means uh, feeder. So this is a person who helps people grow by means. What is the method? It's by feeding people God's word, helping them grow from infancy to maturity in their faith. The third term that he uses is the term overseer. So we have elder speaks of a leader's maturity. Shepherd speaks of the method, which is feeding people. Overseer speaks of the leader's ministry. Uh, this word is also translated in 1 Timothy 3. It's translated as bishop. And um, it speaks of what a leader does. Overseer describes what they do. They oversee what's happening in church. They take responsibility for whatever it is that transpires. And uh, people ask me once in a while, does Calvary have elders? Yes, we have elders. The pastors are the elders. The pastors are the overseers. The pastors are the bishops. These are all terms that are used interchangeably. Now, there are churches, and I know people have different church backgrounds. We're like, well, at, at our church, we had pastors, and we had elders, and we had deacons, and those guys kind of ran the place. And I'm like, oh, your church was deacon-possessed. And uh, that happens. And uh, so, <laughs> and it's a church joke. Anyway, but, but now, while these are terms that are used, um, and, and you, you, know, you can use, have different structures or whatever, but once again, biblically, el- overseer, Pastor, elder, they refer to the same person, but simply different functions within the role of that ministry. So Paul opens uh, by talking about the kind of life that he's living. So while he's going to tell them some really powerful words, the first thing that he does is say, hey, I want to frame my life over the last three years with you. And he talks about how he has served faithfully, even though there were problems. He has preached faithfully, even though there were those who disagreed, but he never backed down from declaring the truth. And there's so much here that applies to us. It's so powerful. But I want you to think about what Paul is saying and why it matters. The reason why it's so powerful is because he never left. It's because he's been lit this whole time. He had been living a life that made the words that he spoke powerful. The thing that gives our words depth and power is the actions and the life behind the words and the person that is saying them. And this is why, listen, the more that we want our words to have impact, the more that our life needs to be in alignment with the things that we're saying. And so, and I'll give you an example of that. So yesterday afternoon, I officiated a wedding for a great couple in our church. And everything went great. It was, it was great, uh, the whole service. And, um, but let me just tell you something as, um, as a guy that's been doing weddings for a long time. And that is, and, and once again, couples, they're usually not, not every person is like part of the inner workings of a wedding all the time. But something always goes wrong, right? You're, you're trying to create, have like a hundred things all kind of crescendo and be perfect. It doesn't, right? Somebody's always late. Somebody, you know, something breaks. Somebody's drunk. Like there's always some problem, right? And so um, like I've been pastoring. I did my first wedding when I was 24 years old. That was about 10 years ago now. And uh, <laughs> that joke keeps getting funnier. And, uh, and so now, um, so I've done, I mean, I've done at least a couple hundred weddings in my life, at least. And so um, the thing is, so I, I get a call, um, I get a call a couple days ago from the, the, the wedding planner or the wedding coordinator who's super nice. And she was actually very good, great at her job. And, um, but she's like, hey, I just want to run through kind of this, this thing, that thing that's going to go on. I'm like, yeah, sure. sounds good. So I'm talking to her and I'm like, hey, listen, don't worry about it. 
Everything's going to be fine. Well, but what about this? And you're going to remember that? And I'm like, listen, this isn't my first rodeo. Everything's going to be fine. And she's like, okay, you know, I feel better now after I talk to you. I'm like, oh, great. And, um, but see, here's the thing. Um, I'm saying that to her at 50. I remember saying it at 24, and no one believed me. Um, and so and I'll tell you this real quick. The first wedding I ever officiated was at a Chinese restaurant. Uh, true story. That was the first one. And the only reason I got to do the wedding was because every pastor in the church said no. And so everyone said no, and then they're like, well, we, somebody's got to marry these people. And they're like, we got it. Well, l- let's let Bob out of the cage. And, uh, and so I was an intern. I was an intern pastor at the time. And, you know, I was 24. They were not letting me work with live ammo. And so, they, you know, they were like, take out the garbage, you know, like something, you know, anyway. So it was, it was like very controlled. And, uh, and then they're like, all right, this is going to be your first wedding. And um, so that's how I found out. I found out one day before. Um, the wedding. So it's like, they're coming in this afternoon. You're going to meet with them, explain to them how the wedding's going to go. And I'm thinking, what do I know? Like, I have, I, I've barely, I've only been to like four weddings in my entire life. And so anyway, and that includes my own. And uh, so anyway, so, and then I got to, I got to write a message. And then of all the things you could possibly do in a wedding, I've got to kind of explain to them. Uh, so anyway, they, fi- I meet with a couple, super nice couple. And so what turns out is that um, the, the groom had been adopted by this Asian family, and, that's, and so his adoptive family was what was ho- who were hosting the, uh, the wedding, and a uh, super nice couple. And um, so anyway, by the way, to this day, best wedding reception food I've ever had. So you can keep your imperial rice, you can keep your boliche. Uh, I'm going Mongolian beef for the win, all right? So anyway, now, um, so now you got to understand, I, this was my first wedding, and I'm doing my very best to hide the fact that it's my first wedding because I don't want that. They're nervous, and it's just like if this guy doesn't know what he's doing and he's the guy running the thing, you know what I mean? This is going to make for a mess. So I was just like, yeah, of course we can do it. <laughs> That's been done. You know, so, and I'm just, not by me, but by others, I'm sure. And so, but I was deathly afraid because, you know, what if I mess up the most important day of their life, then the relationship doesn't work out. Like, we knew it wasn't going to work out because that pastor messed up the wedding. That's why our relationship was doomed. So this is stuff that gives me nightmares. So anyway, that's why when I was a younger pastor, um, I had done a bunch of funerals before I had done my first wedding because when they gave me the choice, um, they're like, we got a wedding or a funeral. I'm like, give me the funeral. Um, Easy. And um, because here's the reality. You can't make it worse. You do a funeral, I can assure you, you are not making it worse. And although I will say this, the first, we- the first funeral I did was so bad. Um, <laughs> it was so bad, the people called and complained. Um, <laughs> true story. I-, I don't have time to tell you that, but I got to make a mental note. Someday I'm going to tell you the story of my first funeral. It was bad. And not that long ago, I actually drove down. I, I was driving down university, and I, was, I, I, I had like this shiver down my spine. And I was like, oh, that's because that's where, that funeral home is where I, did my first, where I did my first funeral and like ruined some people's lives. Okay. So anyway, so I get, to the, I get to the Chinese restaurant. This is a true story. I get to the Chinese restaurant the day of the wedding at uh, 10.30 because their buffet opened at 11.30. And so we're like, we need to have the wedding done, and then we'll have that, like the, the, them eating in a separate room for the reception um, while the restaurant is open. So we got to get this. So I get there, 
And um, I get there probably like 9.30 in the morning. Nothing is set up. Nothing is done. No, half the people aren't even there yet. The only person there is the groom. And when I get there, right as I walk in, he's taking a shot of something. And we make eye contact through the bottom of the shot glass. <laughs> I was so nervous, I almost asked him for a sip. And uh, <laughs> so that's a joke, by the way, just for people that were born without a sense of humor, just to let you know. Um, now... Uh, so the couple says, hey, um, pastor, we want to do communion at our wedding. I'm like, yeah, that sounds great. They're like, we don't have matzah or grape juice. We have white wine, and then we have either oyster crackers or, of course, fortune cookies. And I'm like, no. <laughs> First of all, that sounds like the punchline in a joke. And uh, so I say no. There was an Albertsons next door. I give my wife some money. She runs over to Albertsons and gets matzah and grape juice. And so now the couple starts getting nervous because everybody's late. It's almost 11.30 when the restaurant is going to open, and we haven't even started the wedding yet. So then we're finally starting the, we the, the, the wedding. The restaurant opens, and apparently there's a group of people who are like, 11.30, we are at this buffet because it's like we got to get when it's like fresh. So I want, you to, I, want you to picture, I want you to picture how this works. You have people, right, and they're, they're walking, you know, um, groomsmen, bridesmaids, they're walking down the aisle. So let's just say they're traveling north, let's just say, right, it, from where they are to where everybody, you know, where it's going to be at the back of the restaurant. They're traveling north. And then now I want you to also imagine these are people wearing tuxedos and very nice dresses. I also want you to imagine at the same time people wearing sweatpants and um, shorts. They are carrying trays and they are traveling east-west. And um, because they're going through the buffet. So now you have people, you know, well, that's the, that's the graduation music. All right, some other music is playing. And, uh, and they're like, you know, these people are walking. Oh, I'm sorry, you go ahead. So it's like, this is, there is a traffic jam happening of buffet people, wedding party people. And, uh, and I'm there in the back. I'm like, don't worry, everything's going to be fine. This is, I've seen this before. This is great. Like, no, you haven't. You haven't seen anything. This is a disaster. And um, the people are still married to this day, thank God. And uh, the wedding went great. Everybody was glowing after it was over. And it's probably because the ceremony contained no MSG. That's probably a reason. So anyway, uh, <laughs> and uh, you can ask my wife. That's exactly how it went down. Because, the, by the way, I don't know if you know this. Whenever people meet my wife, they're like, oh, you're Carrie. Oh, and that first question, are all those stories that he tells, are those true? And she's like, Sadly, yes, they are. <laughs> so, but listen, this is the power of faithfulness over time. That listen, what they didn't believe at 24, they believe now at 50. Why? It's just been some time. And if we want our words to have weight behind them, we've got to be faithful. So the question then becomes, how do we develop that ability? That ability to be faithful so that our words are weighty and have meaning. It's because of what Paul says in verse 24. He says this, none of these things move me. This was in response to Paul saying, every city that I go to, people are saying, the Holy Spirit is saying, when you get to Jerusalem, all that's awaiting for you there are chains and tribulations. And here's Paul's response, I don't care. Those things don't move me from doing what God's called me to do. So then it begs this question, what moves you? What's the thing that happens that will cause us to back down, give up, and walk away? We live in a culture 
that gives up on everything too easily. And this is why the words have no power. But listen, there is power and meaning and weight to our words when we don't give up. Paul says this, says, none of these things move me. I don't even consider my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy. He gives this running illustration. Now, I'm not a runner, and I don't think I even need to tell you that. People don't look at me like, I wonder how much, how much this guy runs. It's hovering right around zero, all right? But I have done a couple of 5Ks. I did run one 10K, and then I was like, all right, guys, that's it. I'm retired because I realized that running is a punishment, not a hobby. So... <laughs> But I do say that, I will say this, I am fascinated with talking with people who are marathon runners. And uh, every time I talk to a marathon runner, I ask them the same question. I ask them this, is the wall real? And um, wh what I mean by that is, is that if you, if you talk to someone who runs marathons, or if you have, then you know this, um, runners will tell you that when you get to about mile 21, that you hit something that they call the wall. You are out of energy, you're in a lot of pain, and all you want to do is give up. So I always ask the, the runner, I'm like, hey, is the wall real? Oh, you bet it's real. I'm like, okay, so what do you do when you hit the wall? And um, they'll all kind of say something different. But it's something, it, it's, it's different kind of phrases, but it's something similar. And that is, um, yeah, you hit the wall, but you just got to keep going. Because what will happen is, is that if you keep going, the pain will subside, especially when you come to the realization that with every step you take, you're closer to the goal. And that's, if we're going to finish our race, like Paul says, I want to finish my race with joy, that's what it takes. The moment that we hit the wall, when it's painful and we want to give up, Paul says, look, here's what you got to do. You got to just keep going. Because listen, you've never been closer than you are now. That your marriage might be not where you want it to be, but if you will keep going, it can get there if you don't stop running. That your career is kind of like it's taken all kinds of turns that you wanted to take, and it might seem like it's in some turmoil, but it will get clearer if you don't give up. Your clarity about the future, listen, what God wants you to do, it will clear up. You'll have some vision if you don't give up, and there is a reward coming if we don't allow anything to move us. And this is why Paul says that. Look what he says in verse 25. And now, and indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And if you pause there and give me your attention, second thing I want to tell you is that words need truth and grace. Now, this is a heavy passage, and, and I really want us to grasp what he's saying because it has such... Uh, powerful implications for us, that Paul is not just telling them the truth, he's telling them a sad truth. He's telling them, listen, here's the reality. We're never going to see each other again. And he had says, but I've been preparing you this month. I've been telling you this night and day with tears in my eyes for three years. He's like, that's why I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. By the way, if you want to know why we teach verse by verse through the Bible, it's because of this verse and a few others that Paul's commitment to prepare people for what lies ahead was in teaching and communicating with them 
all of the counsel of God. Now, I want you to hear the heart behind these words. This isn't like theologian Paul or uh, Paul trying to show how smart he is or how right he is. This is Pastor Paul. This is Paul warning these leaders that even as they try to do the right thing, people are plotting evil. So much so that he says that some are going to rise up even from within your own ranks and will seek to divide and destroy the work of God in your midst. Paul calls them savage wolves. You know where he got that language from? He got it from Jesus. In Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Listen, there are people who are completely toxic, and all they know how to do is destroy. And here's how you know that they're toxic because they don't build. They don't build, they don't mend, they don't destroy, uh, they don't restore, they don't fix. All they know how to do is destroy. And here's how they do it. Paul says that they're going to come in and speak perverse things. Now, perverse is a word in our culture that we think has to do with something sexual, but it's not necessarily. The word is diastrepho in in Greek, and it means this, that they're going to twist words. And that's what any perversion is. A perversion, any kind of perversion is taking something good that God has created and twisting it for something evil. And that's what these people do. They come in, they speak twisted things. They take part of a truth, they mix it with lies, they mix it with personal agenda and cause destruction. And here's what you have to do. You've got to get these people out of your life because everything that they do, they destroy everything that they touch. Now, and, and listen, and sometimes the process of removal is painful, but it leads to health. So about 15 years ago, maybe a little more, I got this ingrown toenail. Now, just I say that sentence, and you're like, I like where this guy's going right now. Now, let me explain why. So I got this ingrown toenail that was so bad, my big toe swelled up to like the size of my fist. I could barely put on a shoe without a ton of pain. My wife was like, you need to go see a podiatrist. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to fix this. So I would go into the bathroom and try to dig the nail out myself. Now, I would, I would do this, right? And um, I, now, I don't know if you have podiatrist tools at your house. I don't have a lot of podiatrist tools at, at my house. What I had was a pair of scissors. So it kind of, I, it was like, Scissors that I would use to open an Amazon box, I'm using to now dig out an ingrown toenail. And, um, and so finally, I, and I, so I was trying to dig it, I almost passed out from so much pain. And uh, so finally, my wife convinces me to go see a podiatrist. So I go see him. And um, now, one thing you have to know about this, this guy was an odd bird. I'm going to tell you that right now. And he sounded exactly, and, and you might not know this reference, but uh, he sounded exactly like Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> and if you don't know that reference, you got to look it up. And, uh, but he, he was a pro wrestler who then became a spokesperson for different products, but he sounded exactly like Macho Man Randy Savage. So anyway, I fill all the paperwork. I go back to see him. He puts me in this chair. And then he's like, all right, let's take off your shoe and your sock. And then he's just looking. He hasn't even done anything. He's looking, and he's, uh, he says, oh, yeah. I see someone did a little bathroom surgery. And uh, I'm like, yeah. He's like, it's okay. Everyone does it. But it's twice as painful, and it doesn't fix it. Snap into a Slim Jim. And so, you know, he kind of does this whole thing. And um, so 
<laughs> true story. And then, um, and then he's like, so uh, he, in his accent, he says, what we're going to do, he says, we're going um, to numb it, and then we're going to cut this thing out, and then we're going to give you some ointment or whatever, and then you'll be fine in a couple days. So, but then he takes this, and I can't even believe that they sell this as like a medical supply, but he takes this stand that has like just a little piece of cloth. It basically is like a mini curtain. And so he takes it and then he like, he puts it at, at about my shin. And, uh, and I'm like, what, what are you doing back there? And he's like, you don't want to see what's about to go down right now. And so anyway, so anyway, so he does his thing. And, uh, and it's like, here's what I got to do. I got to rip all that out. And that's essentially what he does so that something healthy can now grow in its place. There are people and you, you, I'm going to say this, and you'll be like, oh, snap. They are like an ingrown toenail. Uh, <laughs> listen, there are people that are poisoning your life. And everything they touch in your life goes bad. When Timothy was Paul's protege, and when Timothy was pastoring, Paul wrote him two letters. He was pastoring in the city of Ephesus, the church at Ephesus that Paul started. He's pastoring there, and listen to what Paul says in his second letter to Timothy. He says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Gangrene is a nasty disease. It, it kills the tissue of the body, prevents blood flow that brings life and nutrients to areas of the body. And listen, there are people that this is what they do in your life. And what are we doing still allowing them to speak into our lives? Because every time they do, they're killing our spirit, they're killing our joy, they're killing our future. And some of these folks, we just need to cut out completely so that something healthy can grow in its place. And you might say, well, what do I do if they're my family? Well, you might need to limit contact with them uh, as much as possible. Oh, but God loves them and wants them to see them come to know Jesus. Yes, that's true. But number one, that doesn't mean you're the person to lead them there. And the other thing is, if they're poisoning your life, you're not influencing them, they're influencing you. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 15, which by the way, he wrote while in the city of Ephesus. He says, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good character. And if you're like, yeah, I got something toxic. I'm married to them. And uh, now, <laughs> let me tell you this because let me, over the years, the things that people have come up to me and said, like, you know that thing that you said about how I should divorce my husband? I'm like, never said that. Are you sure? I'm positive I never said that. So we need to have a little powwow here. And, uh, but sometimes people, they just get like these, that, like I don't even know what they're thinking about. Like, you know when you said that in your sermon? Like I didn't say that. So let me just very clearly, I'm not saying divorce your spouse because you think they're toxic. By the way, if you think your spouse is toxic, you gotta fight for your marriage. You gotta get into counseling, get people praying for you and give God an opportunity to do the miraculous. And I'm not even saying you need to write off your family and never speak to your parents or your kids or whatever because you think they're talking. You've got to exercise wisdom. But could it be that you've got friends who are leading you down a path that you know you don't want to go as a follower of Jesus? It could be that you're dating someone and they're not a Christian and they're making you compromise what you believe just to be with them. These relationships need to be cut off. And listen, and I recognize this, that it's easier said than done. But there are times when you've got to take certain relationships and put them on pause. Some of you know this, that I was in a band and all that, and we were on the verge of a record deal, and uh, I, I became a Christian. I walked away, and, um, and I'm grateful for that. I look back, and it was, it was so sad. Like, all my friends just kind of disowned me. And I look back, and it's like, wow, they were giving me a gift. 
because it gave me the opportunity to, to one, make some friends who were really strong Christians that would lift me up, but two, um, they really helped me grow. It helped me grow in my faith. I was able to hit the pause button on those relationships until the time that I could be the influencer and not the one who was being influenced. And so my challenge to you, listen, is you've got to get out of relationships and environments that are keeping you from being who God has called you to be. And, and listen, it could be a job environment that's keeping you. And, and you're like, man, I, I, maybe it's the time to take a step. It could be a relationship that you need to walk away from. But listen, Whatever it is, and it doesn't mean you don't care about people. What it means is it's killing you, and it's keeping you from becoming who God has created you to be. Well, here's how Paul, this is kind of Paul's crescendo. Look what he says in verse 32. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. And remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he had spoken, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. And if you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you and then we're done. And that is this, that words should encourage and exhort. I want you to see what he says. He says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. The words of Jesus in verse 35 are not recorded in the Gospels. And I want you to note that Paul is not giving them new information. He's saying, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. So apparently people knew this. This is something that Jesus said. Now, it, also, it begs the question, are there things that Jesus said outside of the Gospels? And of course, there's some speaking that he does in the book of Revelation. But other than that, are there things that he said outside the Gospels? Of course. The Gospels don't record every minute, every moment, every scene in Jesus' life. In fact, in the Gospel of John, at the end, John alludes to this, and he says, and there are many other things Jesus did, which, uh, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So this is one of those phrases that Jesus said that's outside of the Gospels. It's called, what's considered, uh, the Greek word is agrapha, and that is that it is unwritten or unrecorded uh, words of Jesus. Now, that this begs the question, and I want to talk about this for a moment. Does that mean that everything that people say Jesus said outside of the, the Bible is, um, is true? No. Because just because someone says Jesus says it doesn't mean Jesus actually said it. And so remember who's writing this. Luke is writing this. He wrote all of this based on not only his personal experience traveling with Paul, but it was based on eyewitness testimony. Uh, when you get to the Gospel of Luke, which he also wrote, he says that he took painstaking uh, time to get all of the interviews, all the eyewitness accounts to give us a composite of what Jesus began to do and teach. It is a, his life, death, and resurrection. So whenever you hear about, so by the way, and, and so when Paul says, remember the words of the Lord Jesus, you can know this, is that he's, he's saying this, He's saying it because it was known. And Luke, who had um, written the gospel of Luke at this time, says, yeah, that's what he said. It didn't make it into the gospel, but it is something that he said. 
And so what happens is that then what will happen is every couple of years, something will happen, and then there'll be some news report, or there'll be some video that kind of starts making waves, and you'll hear about like, well, a new book discovered the gospel of Thomas, or the gospel of Barnabas, the gospel of Mary, the gospel of Peter. And then um, there'll be people, oh man, we'll have all these sayings that are attributed to Jesus. So let me just take one. Let's take the gospel of Thomas. The gospel of Thomas, first of all, is not even a gospel. The gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, talk about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. The gospel of Thomas is 114 sayings of Jesus uh, that he supposedly said, some of which are contradictory to each other, many of which contradict what's spoken in the other gospels. The second thing is it wasn't discovered until 1945 in Egypt. The third thing is we only have one copy and then three little fragments. That's it. The fourth thing is, is that it dates to about 250 to 350 AD, which is way too late. The fifth thing is they attribute it to uh, the Apostle Thomas, who died by 60 AD. He was martyred when he was killed in India, taking the gospel as far east as it had been taken. So not only is it not written by Thomas, it's way too late to have been written by Thomas by two to three hundred years. It, it has all of these unsubstantiated uh, claims about Jesus, none of which are corroborated anywhere else. And... Um, it's, it's way too late to have happened. This is all classified under what's called Gnostic writing. Gnosticism was this philosophy that was trying to hijack Christianity in the first 200 years. And that's why they give it Thomas's name because they're like, well, what happens is Jesus gave Thomas like the secret info. And then, um, which by the way, the gospel of Thomas, and you can find it online. You can read it. It doesn't take long to read. It's just like so weird. And, um, but it's like, well, he, he gave Thomas like secret teaching. Well, then does the Gospel of Thomas describe the secret? No, I didn't tell you the secret teaching. You've got to subscribe to their thing to then get the secret teaching. And so, which creates a problem. And that's always the root of what Gnosticism is, is that there's always something deeper. It's never what it really means, and then uh, whatever. It's clearly a forgery. No one, and this is important, no one takes this seriously. So whenever a, um, you know, someone, it, it's just people who aren't Christians that want to create a gotcha moment. Like, oh, you know, you're a Christian, you believe the Bible. Have you read the Gospel of Thomas? You know, and it's like, okay, no, I, I haven't read the Gospel of Thomas. Well, you should read the Gospel of Thomas. And it's like, well, um, the, the, the problem is um, no serious person um, takes this seriously because we just, we recognize that, that this, isn't, um, this isn't real. And by the way, people who, um, they, oh, you read the Gospel of Thomas? Have you read the Gospel of Thomas? Well, no, I haven't. Have you read any of the Gospels? Anything else? Well, I did watch a six-minute YouTube video, so basically I'm an expert, and, uh, which usually that's really what it works out. So it's like, I, well, I'm sorry. I had no idea there was a six-minute video out there, uh, and uh, your expertise was being called into question. So anyway, serious people don't talk about it, which is why we don't spend a lot of time talking about all this nonsense. Why? Because we'd rather focus on the things that we know Jesus actually said. And by the way, you can be assured of this. Everything we need to live the life God has called us to do is in the pages of Scripture. Uh, the Apostle Peter wrote these words in 2 Peter chapter 1. It's in your notes. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and goodness. So, last thing and then we're done. And that is, so what did Jesus actually say here? Um, he said this, it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. You know what I love? Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, 
It opens with the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, this is how you live a blessed life. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be filled. Blessed are those, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And he just, he keeps going on. So he talks about how to live a blessed life. What I love about this, he says, this, it, it's how to be more blessed. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. So what's his secret? His secret is generosity. So a couple of weeks ago, um, my wife and I were celebrating our wedding anniversary, and we were going to go out to dinner later in the week, but the day of our anniversary, I, I still had a bunch of meetings here and stuff going on, so we said, hey, let's just have lunch on the day of our anniversary, and then we'll go out, um, we'll go out on Friday. So I pick her up, we go to lunch, we go to this place that we like, and um, well, as we're sitting, some guy says, hey, Pastor Bob, and they're like, hey, what's going on? So I walk over, and I had just met him a couple weeks ago at church, and he was just telling me some things that God is doing in his life, which is awesome. And, um, and he says, what are you guys doing here? And I'm like, oh, actually, it's our 27th wedding anniversary. We're just here to have lunch. So he congratulates us, introduces us to a friend of his, and then we sit down. And so then the manager comes over, and uh, we had gotten to know her a little bit over the last year or two. And she says, hey, I haven't seen you guys in a while. And I'm thinking, well, it's because you guys raised your prices. But anyway, I didn't say that. And uh, so, I said, so I said, oh, you know, we're actually here because it's our anniversary. So we order a couple of salads. And the manager says, hey, dessert is on me. So um, she brings out a bread pudding. And friends, um, I took one bite of that bread pudding, and I knew that God loved me. Uh, and it was like, this, yes, Lord, I receive it. It was, it was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. So and it was so good. So then we asked the server for the check. And she says, oh, the gentleman at the table behind you said he wanted to cover the check for you. I'm like, wow, that's so kind. So we're leaving. And we, say, we want to say thank you to the manager for getting us dessert. She says, that was so nice of that guy. Um, he said you were his pastor. And I said, yeah. And she says, you must have made a big impact on his life for him to do that. And she said, um, would it be okay if our family came uh, to one of your services? I'm like, yeah, we'd love that. So I, um, so I invited her, and she had her computer there. So I said, look, so let me show you this. So I go to, um, I said, can I borrow your computer for a second? So I, I pull up mycalvary.com, which, by the way, that's our website. You probably should probably know that by now, but I'll just throw that out. for just, Yeah, of course I knew that. Jot that down, honey. That's a, anyway, so uh, I take her to mycalvary.com. I said, look, I'm going to give you a pro tip right here, and that is um, here's where all the messages are. So before you attend, because you, you have no idea. I could be the worst speaker you've ever heard. So, but you could go, and uh, you could listen to a couple of messages, and if you're like, and this guy's okay, then you could visit. And if it's terrible, please don't tell me. Um, but you could just make something up. Just like, oh, no, I started taking pictures of butterflies on Sunday, and I can't make it. So you just do that. And so anyway, but here, here, here's the point, right? The straightest line to inviting her to church so she could hear the gospel was generosity. She had heard lots of things, and, oh, I know someone who's someone's so-and-so is a pastor. I've heard of that. But the thing that, like, got her to say, hey, I want to be there, um, was generosity. Because what Jesus is saying, what is he saying? Um, are we blessed when we receive? Of course, we all recognize that. They, they, this guy was kind enough to buy our, our, I saw him after the second service, and, and he's like, he, could, he didn't know that part of the story um, of this girl wanting to come to church because of that. And so we were able to, we had a few minutes. And, um, but of course we recognize that, that when we receive, we're blessed, of course. But what Jesus is teaching us is that we're more blessed when we give. Why? Because that's when God gets involved and says, hey, I'm gonna bless that. That, that, that gift that you gave, that thing that you did for that person, I'm going to get behind that and start working and doing things that you couldn't even imagine. That's the way to be more blessed, according to Jesus. So let's pray together.
And Lord, we want to thank you for that, that we could live a life that's blessed, that we could live a life where our words have impact and meaning. And Lord, our hope is that you would uh, continue doing your good work in and through us, Lord. Help us to live the kind of lives that the words that we say mean something. Help us in that, Lord. We pray it um, in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Amen. Let's all. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.